And welcome to Disinfect, the podcast where we air out the worst songs in popular music history. I'm your co-host, Matt Deal, and my other co-host is right there. Hello. That's Morris Bernstein. Yes, the very famous Morris Bernstein. So I'm a, I'm a legend in my own lunchbox. Yes, a legend in your own mind, <laughs> as I've come to, come to, come to find out. Um, so anyway, uh, we're here today because um, today we are airing out, one, you know, in our series of uh, episodes on the worst covers of all time, we may have stumbled upon one of the worst. If I mean, it's it's rank, um, it, and it's a, it, it's a sacred cow uh, that we're you know that 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 goes under the knife here. Um, so, uh, due to our um, intrepid research uh, processes that are proprietary to disinfect, uh, we discovered the worst cover of David Bowie's Life on Mars. Um, I, I, you know, I haven't heard too many other covers of Life on Mars, but this one actually came to us. Uh, the cool thing about this is it came to us through um, a, a fan of the podcast, Um and it's Sean Schwartz. Uh, Sean uh, is is a legend, actually. Um, he uh, ran Halcyon, the record uh, store, uh, and also was a partner in Output, um, the club in Williamsburg, uh, which was also legendary and unfortunately closed recently. And after listening to, um, I think, our Joy Division uh, Paul Young podcast, he suggested... He said, have you ever thought about uh, talking about Life on Mars, uh, uh, Barbara Streisand's version? And I don't think either of us had ever heard it, right? I had never heard it. Um, so so Sean, as um, Morris mentioned, he started a record store in Brooklyn called Halcyon. And I've worked in millions of record stores. And the Barbara Streisand album that this came off of, um, her cover of Life on Mars, is, is an album called Butterfly. And it's like one of the like albums that's always a cutout in the record store. I don't want to say this because I haven't checked this fact, but it, I got the sense working in a record store, it's like one of the most returned albums of all time. You know, like the Kiss solo <laughs> albums and Barbra Streisand's Butterfly. Now, that is, I did not fact check that. But from my anecdotal experience working in the High Fidelity record store, that's true, um, that was my impression. And, you know, I like to think of myself as a musical hipster, so I'm not exactly seeking out those terrible, the worst Barbra Streisand albums. That was not, I think that we hadn't stumbled on it because, you know, we were rocking other shit, basically. <laughs> you know? But it's a gem. It's a gem. It's, so it's going to be a fun it's show. It's a gem of, uh, of the odorous variety, I guess. Uh, well, and, and to be honest, I mean, let's, you know... Covering you wouldn't you weren't going to be honest. No, yeah, David David Bowie's Life on Mars is really one of the most uh, beloved songs I think in popular music history and in 
um, and, and within David Bowie's catalog. And in fact, um, again, using the intrepid and proprietary research uh, methods that Disinfect employs, um, I discovered, you know, thankfully there's a million polls that always back up everything that we say. So um, one poll, I think it was by Digital Spy, put Life on Mars as the number one David Bowie song among his fans. Um, another poll, uh, I think from... Uh, the Spectator. No, no, not, not, our, not our usual... The Spectator. Um, <laughs> oh, Acclaimed Music did a poll. And they said, Life on Mars is the 85th most celebrated song in popular music history. Um, and it it was a hit in England, I think, when it came out. Or maybe... Well, no, it came out in 71. Oh, it right. was released as a single in England in 73. It, so it wasn't a hit when it first came out. So they out. wait. It, it essentially, it, it, they had to wait until Ziggy Stardust mm-hmm. popped. And really, Ziggy Stardust really put Bowie on the map. Hunky Dory is the album. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, it, Space Oddity had been a number one hit in England, I think, in 1969. No. No, that was re-released as... That would... Oh, hold on. You might be Come right. Come on. You're an authentic yes, British person. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. It, did, it was a hit, but that did... But then his career didn't really... Yeah. yeah. His yeah, career nosedived after Space Oddity. It was considered a yes. novelty song. Correct. Like, tied to the space race. Yes. And then uh, he put out a couple albums, Man Who Sold the World, which I don't think did very well. Um, Lulu's version is good of that. Oh, yes. Uh, mm-hmm. And then speaking of covers, good covers by, by Divas. Divas mm-hmm. covering David Bowie well. Um, and, uh, oh, so yeah, Hunky Dory came out mm-hmm. in 71. And then, and it didn't really have much impact on popular culture. And then Ziggy Stardust came out and boom. We have the we have the David Bowie as we think of him today, and then and then Life on Mars became this kind of iconic song. Uh, funnily enough, I think the two the two most beloved songs in in Bowie's oeuvre. I just said oeuvre. Um, I hope you appreciate that. You got to spell it. Um, got to spell it. I think are heroes. <laughs> o e u v r e. Okay. Very good. I, Very good. I took schoolboy French. All right. Um. Uh, I think Life on Mars and Heroes are actually the, t- the top songs in his in his catalog in terms of people. And they were actually hits after they came out, too. Uh, Heroes was not a hit. Life on Mars was not a hit when they came out. Um, and in terms of covers, actually, Life on Mars, it's been covered basically by everybody from Trey Songs to Trey Anastasio. Mm-hmm. Uh, do you know who Trey Anastasio is? Yes, he's in that band, um, like um, Fried Fried Fish or something. The, yes, Fish, good one, good one. <laughs> some other some other uh, covers of uh, Life on Mars are uh, Lord covered Life on Mars, um, Jimmy Fallon and Chris Martin covered Life on oh, Mars. I mean, I mean, Coldplay are one of my all time least favorite bands, <laughs> so I'm very excited to see that. Yeah. yeah. And so, oh, and then in, um, I think Jessica Lang covered uh, Life on Mars for American Horror I Story. I missed that as well. You know, yeah, yeah and it was in The Watchmen. There, uh, yeah. Trent Reznor covered it for Watchmen. Um, mm-hmm. So it's a, it's a song that has sort of a titanic place in popular music history. 
And also, I mean, also a history because um, I, I did a little research on it and somehow it's connected to my way, yes. which I never knew, by the way. That was only after doing some research on it. While we're sort of on the on the uh, topic of how, how great of a song Life on Mars is, it was actually um, not The Spectator, but The Daily Telegraph uh, ranked it at number one. The Tory Graph. There you go. The Daily Tory Graph. We yes. Call it, yeah. The Daily Tory Graph. <laughs> Neil McCormick of the Daily Telegraph ranked Life on Mars as his number one song in the 100 Greatest Songs of All Time. And he said, and I think it actually kind of summed up nicely um, kind of the significance of it. Gloriously strange sci-fi anthem, a stirring, yearning melody combines with vivid poetic imagery to accomplish a trick very particular to the art of the song, to be at once completely impenetrable and yet resonant with personal meaning. You want to raise your voice and sing along, yet Bowie's abstract cut-up lyrics forced you to invest the song with something of yourself just to make sense of the experience, and then carries you away to a place resonant with intense individual emotion, the magic and mystery of music and lyrics. It is something to behold. I'd say that's very well put. There you go. Well, I figured I'd, I'd read him, so I didn't have to make it up myself. Um, but, uh, and, and, and as Morris noted, this song actually has a pretty interesting um, lineage, but I was thinking maybe we actually hear the song and then discuss the lineage. What do you think? Great. Let's All right. It. So yeah, um, I'm always happy to listen to this. So before we get to the worst cover of Life on Mars by David Bowie. Um, let's, hear the let's hear the original. Classic. It's a god-awful small affair. No intro. Interesting. The girl with the mousy hair. Who she is is a subject of great um, uh, debate. Now she walks through her sunken dream. To the seat with the clearest view And she's hooked to the silver screen But she's lived it ten times or more It's my contribution That's a, that's a pop culture reference there, the caveman reference we'll get into. Rick, Mick Ronson. Well, we'll get into that in a minute. He actually took so. that little guitar bit that was influenced by the Beatles. Uh, well, he did a lot more than play the guitar on this song. <laughs> it's on America's tortured brow That Mickey Mouse has grown up a cow I never understood that lyric as a kid. I'll explain it to you later. Because <laughs> Lennon's on sale again John Lennon and then the socialist Lennon. Little wordplay there. Mm -hmm. 
The Norfolk Broads. You're going to have to explain that one. I will. Oh, yes. But the film is a sad thing for Because I wrote it ten times or more He changes. It's, he changes perspective. It's now, it went from her to him. Now, that's another interesting reference to sailors fighting in the dance hall. You know, Bab couldn't. She couldn't resist that. That. That holding that note. That was the diva moment for her. That drew her in. funny bit here so what happened there that little end bit by the way the um they were in the studio and they're 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 you know they're playing i think it was rick wakeman on piano playing away and actually a telephone rang and that little bit was the tell and you can hear mick ronson going oh shit fuck you know at the end so they left it in as a little naturalistic you know inside joke so I just want to say something about what that song meant when it came out, um, you know, in, in England when it came out. because When it Bowie, became a hit, you mean? Yeah, because Bowie was not, he was considered a fringe weirdo. And, um, you know, and obviously the, the youth um, were, uh, were drawn to him for many reasons, uh, you know, for all the reasons that we know. But this song caught the attention of just like the regular people. I remember hearing that song. Friends of my parents played it for my parents when I was there, basically saying, this guy, he looks weird. We don't know his sexuality, but this is real bloody music. And like really sort of paying attention, the fact that, you know, I had these older people who were like pointing to it going, this is incredible. So I mean, I've always thought this song tied in a little bit with um, kind of it was sort of like an ironic commentary on musical theater dance hall British dance hall music um, sentimental sort of British ballads um, many of them over the top uh, in that is that accurate from your from your yeah. youth and I, I think that ties nicely into the song that influenced it mm. and what it was a response to well, funny you should mention that, Morris, because um, it's actually a little more involved than you think. Yes. Um, yes. Uh, so this song, David Bowie intended as, it's, it's kind of almost a cover, it's, a, it's almost a reinterpretation of My Way by Frank Sinatra. And uh, he actually, in the liner notes to Hunky Dory, 
he says, um, I think, thank you, Frankie, or no, inspired by yes, Frankie. He said, yes. And the, but, do you want to do it or should uh, I? Well, no, no, go ahead. Cause yeah, go ahead. Let's see if you, you get all the pointers. Oh, go okay. Um, no pressure. So <laughs> this, this song actually came about because Bowie had, had really, uh, connected to, um, a French chanson mm-hmm. yep. called uh, Comme d'habitude. Yep. How's my schoolboy French? Pretty good. Excellent. Good. Chanson, Oeuvre, Comme d'habitude. Um, and he actually wrote a song called Even a Fool Learns to Love. Correct. Set, set to the music of um, this song, which I think you probably heard from Jacques Brel. He's a mm-hmm. big Jacques Brel mm-hmm. fanatic. Yeah. Um, and... Uh, he so he put this song together. He recorded it, and just as he was about to put it out, he was told he couldn't put it out because the uh, legendary American middle of the road songwriter Paul Anka having my baby, Paul Anka having my baby. Um, <laughs> he had actually purchased the rights to the music of the original French version, mm-hmm. and had, and rewrote it into. My Way, which was memorably recorded by Frank Sinatra. Yes. And so Bowie was actually kind of pissed off because he'd gone to the trouble of writing this song, which, by the way, from the title of it, you know, uh, Even a Fool Learns to Love. I mean, there's no way that song was as good as Life on Mars. No way. So he was pushed to write Life on Mars as a kind of a, he thought it was a sort of a parody at first. And then I think it came, it became something much greater, much more significant. It really became something major for Bowie, much more than just a parody um, of, a, of, of Frank Sinatra's My Way. It really, it, it, it's a very personal song and it's interesting. It, it, it ties in these kind of two tendencies in Bowie, which are on the one hand, he's so good at storytelling, you know what I mean? Like really paint. And this is, I think a very much in the British songwriting tradition, like painting a picture, putting you in the song. Um, you think about like even Eleanor Rigby, like, you know, she's a, you're, you're in that world with her. You don't her. need to sing it. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for keeping me from doing that. <laughs> um, and then I think even for more traditional kind of British Balladry. There's that. Yeah, music. I mean, a lot of it comes from music hall, and he he was very influenced by music hall. And uh, you brought up uh, Jacques Brel as well. Um, I mean, a big influence on Bowie was Scott Walker, who totally. was very influenced by Jacques Brel. Did a lot of his covers. Of I mean, he a lot of Jacques Brel covers on on Scott Walker. Yes, uh, um, Scott Walker. David Bowie was so obsessed with Scott Walker um, that. When they were, I think, when they were recording Heroes, um, the the Walker Brothers, which is Scott Walker's original band, had had re had reunited, and they put out an amazing album called Night Flights, the title song of which Bowie actually covered later. Amazing, one of the great a great album. Um, and Eno came into the studio with the record. He's like, you know what? Let's stop recording because Scott Walker has beat us to it again. I mean, you know, so cool. Um, but then there's also, there's very abstract, poetic 
images in it that seem to not make any sense. Um, and that comes, I think, from a couple of places. I think that comes from his love of Dylan, Bobby Dylan, who he actually, I think, refers to at Hunky Dory. Uh, or, um, and then he's, he was also very influenced by um, what's called the cut-up poetry of William Burroughs. So, but what's interesting is if you really sort of analyze these lyrics, they actually are pretty personal. So Life on Mars is a fascinating song because it's, it's really, a, first it's about a woman that is searching for some greater truth. And she goes to the movies to be sort of taken away, Right by this great now by that who this woman is is um been a matter of great debate by the bowie files um, most people think it is a woman named hermione farthingale how's that for a british name for you that is a very british name yes she was david bowie's um girlfriend and she left him to go star in a movie called uh, song of norway Yes, and she went to Scandinavia. She went to Scandinavia. To star in that, right? And it yeah. broke his heart. It broke his she was heart. A dancer as well, I think. Yes, she was a ballet dancer. Yeah. Uh, yes, she was a yes, a ballet dancer, and apparent. And he said this is a love song, but where it gets interesting, she's so she's sort of the girl with the mousy hair, apparently. But um, what's interesting is David Bowie has always, um, how can I say this? He's always sort of, in a lot of songs, reflected, like, he, there's him, and then there's the sort of the feminine version of him, right? And from what I even know, when he's in relationships, even Angie Bowie, you know what I mean? Is sort of the female converse, and the way he felt about, about Hermione was the same. I mean, they were so close, they were almost one person. And what's, but he, he used to wear dresses with like she did. Yes, they used to. He used to dress the same as her. Yes, it's kind of like a Genesis Porridge early version right. of Genesis Porridge. Yeah, yeah. Um, but it actually became a, a theme in his music. Um, you know, there's there's this duality of like, and then what's interesting in in um, Life on Mars is, well, it's the girl with the mousy hair, right? David Bowie also had mousy hair. And then in the first verse, he's he's talking about her. And then in the second verse, he's talking about me, I. He goes to the first person. Um, and that's that's really interesting. And so the theme of the song, he said, this is David Bowie's interpretation of the song. It's a sensitive young girl's reaction to the media. I think she finds herself disappointed with reality that although she's living in the doldrums of reality, she's being told that there's a far greater life somewhere and she's bitterly disappointed that she doesn't have access to it. And then what's interesting is David Bowie later said, I think that really my subject matter hasn't really changed over the years that in a way I'm still writing life on Mars still all these years later. It's like I want to keep writing about the same subject, but my approach is, is like I'm trying to get into it, like I'm finding a different door each time I approach that subject. And so the subject of this song to me, and it's really, again, it's really 
when you really get into it, it's such an incredibly written song. He puts you in the world of this, you know, of, of, of the girl with the mousy hair going to the movies, trying to, trying to, you know, escape a reality. Uh, and then she decides that the movies are banal. And then what about life on Mars? You know what I mean? Like, like the movies aren't taking her away. So she has to go cosmic. And by the way, that going cosmic at the time, I think in that time in the seventies was like, you know, the space was a big thing, you know, Pink Floyd, mm -hmm. uh, dark side of the moon. Yeah. You know, there was this, this idea that like, alternate galaxies and dimensions were, you know, within our grasp and we'd find the truth there. So um, that's sort of the basis of it. But then he gets to the chorus and yeah, he goes into outer space from the movie. And this was one of the most interesting anecdotes that I'd never known before. Um, he says, you know, there's the sailors fighting in the dance hall. So apparently David Bowie had a sort of a bit part in a movie called The Virgin Soldiers, where um, he's in a dance hall and sailors start fighting. And so the reason why that is important is the big theme, I think, in David Bowie's music in general is like, you know, the line between escapism and reality, you know, like, being, you know, willing yourself into this being that's like so much more important and cosmic, you know, not remaining earthbound and 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 struggling with it. And um, so this song is really it's like about escapism. Uh, I think it's this is it the second verse. It's on America's torture brow that Mickey Mouse has grown up a cow. So so Mickey Mouse was sort of like obviously an escapist icon. Mm -hmm. um, and also, uh, this is important, a pop art icon. Mm -hmm. So And he was a big Warhol on, fan as well. So. Well, on this album, there's a song called Andy Warhol mm -hmm. on Hunky Dory. Mm -hmm. And the whole thing about pop art that was championed by Warhol was, you know, everything, you know, there's this... There's no distinction between the most banal things in our life, the most popular things, and art. Mm -hmm. And so we're all sort of living this pop art existence. And, I, and that really affected Bowie. And so, and then he says, um, and then workers have struck for fame because Lennon's on sale again. And so that's a play on, I think John Lennon had just put out Working Class Hero mm -hmm. after... Uh, after mm -hmm. breaking up the Beatles. Mm -hmm. And, but even within that, there's the Vladimir Lenin, yeah. John Lennon play, you know, so in other words, even communism has mm -hmm. become popular culture. Mm -hmm. um, and then it gets really interesting. It goes from, from Ibiza, by the way, I'm pronouncing it correctly. Mm -hmm. Barbara Streisand no, does we'll not. Get to, we'll, we'll get into that. We'll get there. <laughs> but uh, he goes, you know, so he says from Ibiza to the Norfolk broads, rule Britannia is out of bounds to my mother, my dog and clowns. And, what he's saying there, it, again, he's literally, that's about the it's actual escapes. British people would escape to Ibiza. Correct. Especially working class people. Yeah. And the Norfolk Broads, they were like a vacation yeah, area. Yeah, so the, Norf the Norfolk Broads, um, Norfolk is, or as you would say in America, Norfolk. It's actually Norfolk. <laughs> um, so just, just, just putting it out there, the correct pronunciation. Uh, it's an area of England called East Anglia. And if you right. look at a map of England, it's kind of like, it's like the bum. It looks like a, mm. a, a, a rear. 
and that right. sort of juts out into sort of like the lowlands of sort of Holland. Uh, and I think before, uh, you know, the, you know, the shifts in, 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 in land, um, it was probably part of, um, they were probably, they were obviously all connected. So it's very flat, uh, and very similar to, to Holland. Um, and it, um, they have these, 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 uh, rivers, um, you know, and you go, an English vacation is to go to the North Broad and go on a barge um, and sail around um, very slowly on a barge down the <laughs> Only British people would think that was fun. Uh, yes, I, mean? I did it for a holiday once when I was a kid. Yes, it was fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> um, and do they have, with, now, do they have like, I know, like Blackpool would have like shows and stuff. Sort no, of you know, I mean, uh, the other thing that they had in uh, in East Anglia was because it was a, it was a holiday destination. They'd have uh, what was very popular in England before um, you know we were able to uh, sort of afford to go abroad was holiday camps. And right, Tommy. To, Tommy's correct. Classic, uh, Tommy is by the all, who? Yeah, Tommy's in the holiday camp, and that'll be the day the David Bo, uh, the uh, David Essex uh, film that then became Stardust. They're in a holiday camp, and literally, I know it sounds like a concentration camp. The the sleeping accommodation was similar to a concentration camp, um, <laughs> and the food was probably similar as well. And they were. They were, um, Mo- Morris has had relatives mainly, that passed away in the Holocaust, mainly, and he has authority to, to, mainly, to say this. Uh, called Butlins and Pontins, yes. um, uh, and they, they, you know, and that's where you would go um, for your holiday. And um, off season, uh, they became known as places where you would have the weekenders. Uh, so the Soul weekenders um, would happen there. You go to Castor the Soul Weekend. Mm-hmm. And, and in the summer, these are the places where uh, they would have the holiday camps. So that's a little right. bit about Norfolk Broads and holiday camps. And- oh, and then getting back to the pop art aspect of it, um, uh, again, David Bowie, thinking about pop art, making a song that's pop art, he, he references um, when he says, look at those cavemen go. It's actually, that's an exact quote of a, from a line from the song Alley Oop, which is a famous doo-wop song. Alley Oop is a really, I don't know if you've looked at the lyrics lately, but it's a very escapist kind of crazy song that when you were young, you'd be like, oh, that's, you know, you really, it, it really sparks the imagination, especially of someone like David Bowie. And then, but what he's doing is like, he's bringing in pop culture into his song, like, it's it's his own song. It's like he's not differentiating, almost like a sample, basically. You know, and it's nostalgia. It's all that stuff. Even when he's talking about like the um, you know beating up the wrong guy, it's like when you're watching a movie and the you know the cops are beating up the wrong guy, and you're like emotionally invested. You know, and that's I mean, and in getting into sort of the the cover aspect of it, and and talking about it as a cover. It, we've hit this with like level terrace apart, which is on the one hand, it's like, it's kind of cryptic. On the other hand, it's like so personal. How can somebody really do it justice better than David Bowie? You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, so a couple of things I, I want to sort of like 
mention in the song before we, we move on to the cover. First of all, uh, it is a tradition that we uh, talk at some point about Manchester in our podcasts. Oh, we and, haven't done that yet. And I would like to just um, make that point now because... Um, we also haven't mentioned Whitesnake, but there go was, ahead. Uh, there was a TV series called Life on Mars, which was um, uh, about a, a, a policeman in Manchester who um, gets knocked out and then ends up in 1971. Uh, and it's based in <laughs> Manchester. So there we go. We got our Manchester in uh, connecting it with life on Mars. The other thing I wanted to, to talk about was, uh, you know, I think we should talk a little bit about the actual making of this record in the studio. Oh. We, we touched on it a little bit with Rick Waitman. Rick Waitman did play the piano on this. That's the same Rick Waitman who went on uh, to be the keyboard player in Yes. Uh, and and also yeah. really innovated kind of the synthesizer yeah, in popular very, music. Very, very much so. Uh, but I, I feel that the person who gets the least credit uh, really throughout the, what I say, the best part of Bowie's career, uh, is a gentleman called Mick Ronson, uh, who obviously played, the, obviously played the guitar on that, but he did so much more than that. And, um, you know, I think we need to spend a little bit of time just talking a little bit about Mick, because Mick was a, a working class man from Hull in the north of England. It's pretty much, it's pretty grim up in Hull. It's like, it's a fishing town up, up, up in the northeast of England. Um, and, you know, Mick was very working class, you know, and like, you've got to understand that Bowie was very sort of like theatrical and, you know, all about well, Bowie was Cockney as well. He was about, working class. All, well, yeah, but he was, he had become part of the sort of like the, the bohemian, right. uh, you know, like he lived in this, his house and he had all these people living there and everything. Mick Ronson was a gardener right. up in, up in Hull. Hull, who was also an amazing musician. But not only was Mick a great guitar player, but he did the string arrangements on Life on Mars as well, uh, which he doesn't get 100% credit for. Right. Um, the string arrangements will, are so great as well. And he on continued song. working with Bowie, not only, you know, through you know, a lot of Bowie's great songs, but also when Bowie went on to produce records like Transformer for uh, Lou Reed, Reed, it was Mick Ronson who basically did the arrangement on Walk on the Wild Side. Right, and the strings. The, and the strings, which is one of the greatest songs of all time. And another little known fact about him, besides the fact he did work on a Smith album or a Morrissey album, is that he was the guy who really got Jack and Diane by John yes. of Mellencamp up to scratch to make it a hit. So, and again, by the way, John Cougar was managed by David Bowie's um, manager. What, uh, what's his name? Tony um, DeFries. Yeah, the, the crook. <laughs> and so, so John Cougar was actually marketed first as a sort of a David Bowie ripoff before right. he became like a Bruce Springsteen ripoff. Before, before he, they uh, they added the name Mellencamp. To yes, him, his name. Yes, um, uh, but um, you know, again, Mick Ronson, um, somebody who does not get enough credit. Uh, unfortunately, he's no longer with us. He died of liver cancer when he was forty-six years old. But an absolute genius. And also, the last thing I want to say is probably one of the most iconic moments for anybody my age on British television was the performance of Bowie of Starman on Top of the Pops. And there was the moment when 
he was performing Starman and him and Ronson sort of like leaned on each other. And that is, you know, anybody who's, who, who, who is around my age, that is one of the most iconic. It's, that, that's the same as the Beatles on the Ed Sullivan show. It was like this moment where we were all like, oh, fuck, this is, this is the next thing. It was like we've we've moved so, on to the seventies, or we're yes. we're we've moved on to a new era. Yeah. Well, and yeah. also what's interesting too is the actual video for Life on Mars. Brilliant, Mick Rock. It, yeah. Yeah, yeah. It was directed by the great rock photographer Mick Rock, um, and it's it's you know it's funny it's one of the coolest videos even today. It looks timeless. Absolutely. You would never know, and I mean you know I urge our listeners, thousand the millions of you out there to go to YouTube and watch the Life on Mars video because it's, again, kind of in the what, what Morris was saying about Starman and that performance. Life on Mars, when that video came out, it was another sort of seismic shift in the culture because Bowie, you know, they're like, it, it was a, is he a man? Is he a woman? But also he was like an otherworldly creature. Yeah. It really changed people's perceptions of... of I mean, everything, popular music, popular culture. And it was so simple. I mean, it's such a genius, genius, genius video. Um, Brilliant. Totally timeless. Uh, yes. And, oh, totally. just just before we get into the, the completely atrocious um, Barbara Streisand uh, version of Life on Mars, which really, again, we've, we've said this warning before, you can't unhear this. It is, it is that bad. Um, uh, you know... We're paid the big bucks to listen to it over and over again. I think I listened to it ten times, but um, I only before, made it through twice. So you, well, yeah, more, yeah. more man than me. Well, you know, um, but uh, but to to also to give credit where credit is due, um, Hunky Dory was I think one of three albums. Yes, Man Who Sold the World, Hunky Dory, and Aladdin Sane were all produced by Ken Scott, and Ken Scott um, he'd engineered I think an earlier record, and he was an engineer at, at Abbey Road, I believe. I think he engineered, and he went on to produce Devo, um, trying to think of some of the other people he recorded, uh, but became, a, oh, Super Tramp. He became a very famous producer. And, um, and that's interesting because uh, kind of what you were saying about Mick Ronson being a little underappreciated in terms of what he brought to, you know, he wasn't just a guitar hero. He was really uh, a producing genius. Uh, this you know so Tony Visconti is really the person that is most associated with David Bowie in terms of a producer, but in fact these three albums produced by Ken Scott were were you know they're as they're as great as anything in in David Bowie's career um, and and I think where 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 Ken Scott was kind of amazing Ken Scott started as an engineer. And so he was sort of, well, this started with the Beatles at Abbey Road, where the engineers were like, they like, like doctor coats, you know what I mean? They were, they were engineers, recording engineers. They were true, like scientists, doctors. Yeah. And um, the Beatles sort of forced them to become sort of creative compadres, you know, um, you know, and, and to break the rules and so I think when Ken Scott sort of made that transition from engineer to producer, 
it was it was not so much that he was like putting his mark on David Bowie as much as he was allowing David Bowie to really be himself, if that makes any sense, which I think was really critical for David Bowie at that point in time that he, you know, that he really kind of get his freak on basically in the studio. Um, and also, to be honest, I think he also enabled Mick Ronson to do things in the studio, Ken Scott, that I don't think Mick Ronson right. even knew, knew he was capable of. So, um, okay, well, we've gone on and on and on about that song. Let's hear the Barbra Streisand version. I think they're playing the uh, the piano with a, a sledgehammer. But her mother is yelling no And her daddy has told her to go But her friend has Already screwed up the melody. As she walks through her sunken dream To the seat with the clearest view And she's hooked to the silver screen but the, the vibrato is just getting a little much. She's lived it ten times or more She could spit in the eyes of fools As they ask her to focus on sailors Fighting in the dance hall Oh man, look at those cavemen go It's the freakiest show Hearing Barbara Streisand say freakiest It's not something I looked forward to in life She's like trying to be Liza Minnelli in Cabaret and she's hitting more The Carpenters. She does a cover of The Carpenters on this album as well. That's true. And Bob Marley. Well, we'll get into that. Yeah. <laughs> Cause Lennon's on sale again. Again. <laughs> From Abesa to the Norfolk Broads. Rule Britannia is out of bounds. To my mother, my dog, and clowns. But the film is a saddened bore. Cause I wrote it ten times before. It's about to be written. Look at those cavemen go, people. Take a look at the beating up the wrong guy. Oh, that, I like when she emphasized yes. the wrong guy for no reason. <laughs> well, she was with the wrong guy when she made the album, so we'll get into that as well. <laughs> oh, yes. <laughs> Just asked the question one more time than Bowie did. She had to outdo him. It's a cut. Okay, brilliant. Brilliant, Barbara. You can go back to making a movie now. I mean, 
she, you know, what was cosmic in David Bowie was maudlin in Barbra Streisand's hands. Oh, my God. A god-awful <sighs> small affair indeed. In fact, not a god-awful overwrought too huge affair indeed, I think that that was. It, 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 it's <sighs> shocking. Where to begin? Where to begin with Where the badness begin? on you, that you one? You start and then I'll just jump right in. Go ahead. Well, I mean, it's funny. I, I had a couple thoughts. Um, I thought if, you, if you'd stumbled onto this song without knowing it was Barbara Streisand, you might think, oh, my God, this is the worst Kate Bush performance I've ever heard. Doesn't hit you there, huh? No. So, well, um, I mean, and then the other thing, the other thing that, like, this is a classic thing in covers, when people sing lyrics that they clearly have no fucking idea what they're singing about. Yeah. You know um, what I mean? I mean like, it's like, to me, it's like, like when you go see... Um, a, a movie that stars like a, a famous French actor, but it's in English and it's clear that, you know, like Victor Cassell in Westworld, I don't think he had any idea what he was saying in English at all. And it's sort of when Barbara Streisand is doing this and, and then, you know, it's like, she does, it, it, she does not understand. She says Ibiza. And then the other thing, Christopher Walken once said that what he did when he acted was try to speak as if punctuation did not exist. And I think that's Barbra Streisand here all over the place. Her vocal performance, it's like the vocal version of jazz hands. So again, when someone... Not grandma's hands. Grandma's hands. We'll get to, which we'll is get, also on the album. Which is also on the album, unfortunately. <laughs> you know, rest in peace, Bill Withers. Um, no, but in all seriousness, I think when a song, a cover song goes off the rails... It's, or when, a, when, a, when an interpretive singer blows it is when they start going jazz hands with the melody. When they just, they, they, they kind of try to, they over-enunciate the melody, they, they, they try to change it. And it's not to say like, you know, Billie Holiday can't tweak a melody here and there, but if something is so iconic, if you're going to like tweak it out, you better, it better be like so fucking amazing or it's just going to be terrible. And, and, Every time she sort of, it, you, it makes you think that she never listened to the original when right. you hear it. Well, I, I I don't think she did. And I think, you know, the, we, we have to understand that, first of all, I mean, Barbara Streisand is one of the most iconic and most amazing artists, vocalists, um, actresses of of. 20th and 21st centuries. Many, many generations. So, you know, I, I just want to be clear, we are not dissing her we are just dissing this terrible song um or a terrible version of a, an amazing song um you know i mean you've got to look at probably where she was at this point as well we're talking about a global movie star uh yeah. this was the first album that she had put out um in in a while after the uh, way after the way we were after the way was- we were so she was a she was busy so i, I don't think that she was really um spending a lot of time in the creative process. It kind of feels to me that no. it was like, hey, we have a recording session at A&M Studios. Um, can you be there from three o'clock to five o'clock in between shooting your next movie? Here are the lyrics to the song. Have a quick listen. Go. And, well, and, 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 it, and it's very obvious that that's the case because she doesn't understand what she's talking about. So, you know, the Ibiza to the Norfolk Broads. I think she thinks the Norfolk Broads are women. 
I think she thinks it's like a from strip, Connecticut, a strip, like a burlesque. Uh, no, they're 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 broads from Connecticut. Yeah, from Norfolk, Connecticut. I mean, it is so off on everything that she says in this song. She knows nothing about it. And and the person who I blame for this, because I always say that cocaine is is a big part of the problem. It's 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 her boyfriend John Peters. If you it's, want to find the root of a bad cover, we've discovered yeah. that cocaine is usually cocaine involved. Is always in it. And, you know, because this was produced by her then boyfriend, the ex hairdresser John Peters. Who, who inspired the never, film Shampoo. Shampoo, who had never produced a record in his life, and it's bloody obvious by that. He does not have a bloody clue what he's doing on this. And then if you listen to the mix, I mean, do you remember how that song begins? The mix is all wrong. The mix is all wrong. Blame that on cocaine as well. It's like he, he was so out of his depth on this album, and the only reason why he got to do it was because he was screwing Barbara Streisand at the time. And, um, you know, I, I, I think it's appalling. Um, I mean, I know. think one thing that we've d- ascertained throughout the, the, the oeuvre of Disinfect, now it's something that we've really sort of hit on, I think, is when you try to modernize an iconic artist and make them hip, then you are just hit, heading for a swan dive into, um, you know, uncoolness like none other. And, you know, so it's like on this album, John Peters chose, you know, she'd, she'd recorded like what, like uh, Rodgers and Hammerstein in the past and, you know, these, yeah. you know, incredible show tunes. Um, and here he wanted to sort of do that with, you know, the great songwriters in, 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 of our time, the great, and also not even just the great songwriters, but like he wanted to have her do R and B and he yeah. wanted to have her do and reggae, reggae. And he wanted to have her, you know, do glam rock, and uh, you know, and 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 and, and, uh, and soft rock. I mean, there's a Carpenters cover, yep. there's a Graham Nash cover on there, right? Um, it's all it's all covers. It was um, kind of like Bill, a Bill Withers, Grandma's right. Hands. I so mean, yeah, she covers Grandma's Hands by Bill she Withers. Called it Boobula's by Bubbler's Hands because yeah. it it's just it's so off. It's... And I mean, I mean, we could have chosen that song. <laughs> I mean, she basically <laughs> tries to sing like every, like Diana Ross, Minnie Ripperton. She's literally like aping every major R&B singer. And Haley Jackson as well. Yeah. 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 Oh, and then, and then getting back to like, you know, the production. And it's like, if you think about Bowie's song, like it, 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 he's so clever. It starts with no intro. You know what I mean? It's like you're in the song, like boom. And it's a really subtle, like... Um, almost like Mozart kind of piano figure that Rick Wakeman is playing. And by the way, Rick Bowie wrote those chords and Rick Wakeman sort of took them into the stratosphere. You know what I mean? If you Mm -hmm. listen to it, like Rick Wakeman's piano playing is so virtuoso, but it serves the song. You know what I mean? It's really incredible. And then her, she has this really, you know, he's Bowie's dispensed with the intro, which is like a very canny move, very like smart songwriting move. She has ramped up the intro. She's added intro that wasn't there. And if you listen to the piano, it's like, I think I said it when we were, the song was playing, it's like, it sounds like they're playing with a sledgehammer. Yeah. It's like, dong, dong, dong. It's terrible. And, you know, the I wouldn't say the David Bowie song is, is uh, um, 
a, a wallflower when it comes to bombastic production. You know, it's pretty, it gets pretty up there, but she takes it to 11. I mean, she's, yeah. you know, she's holding notes forever. Well, she's doing, she's doing her thing. I mean, the, her version is way too Broadway for me. Um, you know, because that, that's what she knows. Um, and I mean, again, I'm going to go back to the guy who produced this thing. I mean, this is a guy who was famous, uh, for designing her wig in, uh, the movie for Pete's sake. That's how they met each other. Um, so, so how he went on to produce this record, he must have been a very good, uh, sweet talker because he then went on to, to run Sony, um, Sony pictures with his partner, Peter Guber. And they ran married Pamela Anderson for about a well. week and a half. Oh, he married Pamela Anderson for a week. I mean, listen, kudos to him. If you got Warren Beatty playing you in shampoo, I mean, he obviously had a good life, but not a record producer. Uh, and I think um, the reality is that uh, musicians like Tom Scott, who did a lot of the arrangements, a great musician, they basically saved this record. So without their help, this would have been even worse. Yeah, Tom um, Scott was sort of the Mick Ronson of this record, apparently. Correct. By yes. the way, this the album. This album, um, I don't know if we mentioned Butterfly. it. It's called Butterfly by by yeah. Barbara Streisand, and um, and so uh, John Peters was the producer, and Tom Scott is a very famous jazz uh, trumpeter. Sax I think. player, sax, sax player. player, sax player. Yes. Yeah. On the other hand, I would say about Tom Scott, incredible musician, but he was kind of the progenitor of light jazz. He was sort of an early. He was not with Joni Mitchell. No, no. I mean, what I'm saying is like, yes, he did fusion. He he worked on Joni Mitchell's records. He had a legit. Tom Scott had a legitimate career, but when he went on in the '80s, his stuff got very cheesy. But everything went cheesy in the '80s. Well, that's true. I mean, but but you know, it's. I guess what I'm saying is. You know, he was not like Quincy Jones might have just torn this up and made it amazing. You know what I mean? I don't think he would have touched it with a sledgehammer. Yeah, exactly. I mean, you know, and I and I think so. So I think, even though I think Tom Scott's a great musician, I think like his aptitude for fromage mm. was a yes. little more enhanced than maybe someone that was a tougher producer. But you know what? I, I, if I would have been, you know, working on this album with her and if she would have su- suggested that she was going to do a David Bowie cover, I would have said, but, you know, because I think if she would have done Rebel Rebel, it would have suited her much more. Wow. <laughs> I'm joking. Wow. Can you imagine Barbara Streisand covering Rebel Rebel? <laughs> God, you just, I mean, the thing is, it might have been discussed. That's what's so scary. Um, Could you imagine Barbara Streisand covering Rebel Rebel? <laughs> Why did you do this to me, Morris? You fucker. <laughs> Holy shit. Um, that's like antimatter. You just brought but, in. But, but she did say it was her least favorite. Wait, hey, hey, we're going to get there. We're going to get there. All right. Hey, sorry. God, we have man. no script, so I don't know. So yes, we're, yes. we're kind of, yeah. Um, uh, we always end with what the artists think of the song. And so I was saving that for the grand finale. All right. So but, I won't say what Bowie thought of it. I'll let you yes, say that. Yes, okay. yes, yes. Well, I don't have to say it, but you know, um, it, what's funny is what you what you were hitting on with John Peters is he was trying to be like a Svengali to her. Yes, know? and I mean he made the wig, and then yeah. uh, next thing you know, he's going to produce the record. Yeah. He was going to be Pygmalion. I've just busted <laughs> yeah. out two yeah. cliches. Yeah, and but when 
again, this is kind of like, you know, we hit on this like Rupert Everett and, and Madonna in, Amer- you know, doing American Pie. It was, it was Rupert Everett's idea. He sort of produced it. And it was like, no, don't have the like supporting actor in your movie A&R your, and produce your record. And I think in the case of like John Peters, when you talked about him being out of his league, it's like, this is Barbara fucking Streisand. Right, exactly. You know what I mean? And you're playing Pygmalion, Pygmalion, you know, um, Ibiza. Uh, no, John, you know, for John Peters to try to play Pygmalion to Barbara Streisand, it's like, you are out of your depth here, dude. You're, you know, it's like, in other words, it's a lesser mind, a lesser artist trying to shape one of the defining artists of the 20th century. Right. No, no, no question. No question about that. Um, so can, can we just, just talk for a second about another song on there that we talked oh, yeah. about very quickly. And, and that is, and you know, I know you're obsessed with cod reggae. Oh God. One of yes. The biggest, worst cod reggae covers of all time is her cover of guava jelly by Bob Marley, which not only has her doing a bad Jamaican accent on some of the songs, but they also put steel drums in there as well. Oh, the steel drums are terrible <laughs> in that song. It's I mean, amazing. That, that is that is a cod reggae classic. I mean, she should have been shot for doing that. By the way, know. just just to, just you know, we've talked about cod reggae in a few other episodes, but like, what are some other what are some other great cod like a uh, red red wine by UB40. Mm-hmm. That's a cod reggae. Um, Dire Maker by Led Zeppelin. Dire Maker by Led Zeppelin yeah, is yeah. really one of one of the worst, maybe the worst Led Zeppelin song ever. Uh, one of the Roxanne by the Police. Again, that's a debatable one. That is cod Ooh, reggae, but it may it be the highest reggae. form of it. Uh, you know yes. what I mean? Um, and, oh, and then uh, what's the, the the Neil Diamond? Oh, Neil Diamond, uh, Jamaica. Um, uh, Jamaica, say you will. No, funky reggae. Funky Reggae by Neil Diamond. And, really um, bad. And then The Tide is High by Blondie. Which I think is a great one. So I would say Roxanne and Tide is High are the, like, if they're the best that Cod Reggae has ever been. Uh, but getting back to, so, but Guava Jelly, I mean, so again, Life on Mars is an entree to how misguided the album Butterfly was. Um, she, you know, she's covering Bob Marley. Now, Bob Marley. You know, he wrote Guava Jelly. It's about sexual lubricant. It's about using mm-hmm. Guava Jelly as mm-hmm. KY Jelly. Basically. On his single bed. On his single bed. <laughs> <laughs> and so, you know, again. And, but his, his cards were on the table. So. <laughs> I mean, you know, so, for, and I don't know, did, 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 did Barbara get the double entendre in the, in the song? I don't think she got anything because, as I was saying earlier, I don't think she was really part of the creative process. It was like, John, I love you, babe. I know you got this. Just tell me what I've got to sing and I'll sing it. But I got to go. I got to go back to my movie set. I mean, that is probably exact. So she probably in the car on the way to the studio. They probably played her the song. I mean, she's a brilliant musician, so she's able to get things very, very quickly. Here are the lyrics. Right. It's uh, Advisor and the Norfolk Broads, the women in Connecticut, you know, like... And, Norfolk, Virginia. Yeah. yeah. But it's in Norfolk, Connecticut, right? There's, there's Norfolk both. In, there's many Norfolks right. throughout. I think there's Norfolk, Illinois, you know. Right. Very well, American to do that. And I think I think something that, again, with, with cover songs as well 
if you don't really know, and this was true of Paul Young and Level Terrace Park, if you don't know what the fuck the song is about, then you just fall back on your like standard tricks, you know, you're, you know, so like, she's exact, yeah. So for her, you can hear, she's like, she's doing her vibrato all over the place, but it's like in completely inappropriate places. Like when you do, when you bring up a vibrato into a song, it's to draw attention to something intentionally. And she's like just busting it out. And then I think in the chorus, she, she goes like three octaves up or something. And it's almost like a key change. Yeah. You know what I mean? And it's like... She's papering over the cracks of, you know, she she's a superbly skillful vocalist. So you're right. She's she's falling back on her brilliant ability as a vocalist to sing a song, but she's just not interpreting the song. And then I, I think, think there's, those, there's those moments where the, in, in the Bowie song, they're pretty incredible, which is um, where he's holding the note. You know what I mean? Weather life on Mars. And it really, and, and you could see that that's sort of what attracted her. And, but when she does it, she just goes full diva. You know what I mean? She's just holding I, it, holding yeah. it, holding I it. Bet, I bet that she said, if somebody asked her who wrote that song, she said, uh, it's David Bowie. <laughs> well you say david bowie i don't know you know i mean you're well, one bowie, to talk yeah yeah bowie well that's the correct pronunciation no, no, bowie, bowie is the correct pronunciation bowie bowie bowie, bowie. are you bowie. a bowie or a roxy fan that was the only question you were if you're asked man city you were, i'm gonna cut you with my bowie knife it was united or city bowie or roxy that was it it was roxy music or david bowie so again yeah, so, the, the tra- yeah. what's lost in translation here is Bowie is a Western American term, Bowie knife, which I believe comes from Native Bo- American. Isn't it Bowie? Isn't it Bowie knife? Nice try. Nice try. No, no, you, no. You, I'm ba- sure Bowie, you... Bowie knife. It's like, it's like the Derby, right? But yes, it's like the Derby. Like, <laughs> yeah. yes. But which when is named got... after Lord, Lord Derby, you know, yes. like a, a British Lord. Yes. So We're talking about the wasn't, Kentucky he Derby. Wasn't, he wasn't called Lord Derby. He was called Lord Derby, <laughs> you know, like, so just. The Lord Kentucky so, Derby. Yeah, yeah, um, Derby. But then, so then when <laughs> Bowie got his name, he took it from a Western. And Correct. so, but, but in England, people would have to say Bowie. There was just no way. They, anyway. Um, what else about this song is just epic? Uh, I mean, again, I think the big thing to me that really sets it off is is Bowie, Bowie, was interpreting Bowie. you, you, <laughs> you fucking Mancunians. <laughs> ah. um, no, it uh, Bowie was taking my way, taking the chanson comme d'habitude. And filtering it through his consciousness and creating kind of a new artistic thing that was like bigger than those things. It was like it it it, it was like a, a a generational statement. You know what I mean? And also so personal, so personal, um, so personal, but also not caught up in like singer songwriter garbage of the time. You know what I mean? Like right. that was such a thing of that moment when that song came out. It was like. James Taylor, Jackson Brown, you know, it was the singer-songwriter, even Elton John, although he didn't, well, he, he wrote the melodies, but, you know, it was this idea of the confessional singer-songwriter, and he did it with such art, and, but it really, it, it, it's not yeah, that it was... Yeah, I mean, 
Yeah, I mean, what? Jackson Brown and James Taylor weren't really rocking our world in England back in 1971. Well, well James Taylor was signed thing. to Apple Records by the Beatles. I know it was, but he wasn't rocking our world. I mean, he wasn't that successful. Fire and Rain, I yeah. think, was like a number one song in England. Well, Cat Stevens. Cat Stevens. Oh, a- now, Cat Stevens was, yeah, because yeah. he was English. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah he was a, he and was Elton John. And Elton John. Yeah. I mean, they were they were sort of almost like before. But Jackson Brown, I I, I think the only, first time I heard of Jackson Brown was when uh, the Jackson Five covered "Doctor My Eyes." Wow, we're getting to a moment here. Um, right. That, I mean, other than that, I'd never heard of him before. Well, I, I mean, thought the, he the was thing- part of the Jacksons. Jackson you Brown, you know. Right? Exactly. Um, I mean, the thing in the seventies was people got confessional, and and that was sort of, mm-hmm. you know, if you weren't confessional and playing an acoustic guitar. You know, um, we had we had Nick Drake and John Martin who were doing which were amazing. Us, so yeah, I mean they they were they we, were we they were. Go ahead. We didn't need Jackson Brown. So well, we had, and you we had, had uh, Richard and Linda Thompson. Oh yeah, but then they were confessional in a really edgy way. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? And so the the sort of American singer songwriters kind of softened the the confessional. Anyway, my point is is that. On the one hand, Life on Mars sort of epitomizes kind of what was happening in music and then transcends it to become timeless. Yeah, Bowie was transcending yeah. everything. Everything. And then, yeah. and he transcended his original inspiration, which was my way, you know? And then, whereas Barbara Streisand didn't even get in touch with the inspiration of that song, you know? Right. Like, right. it's just bizarre. Um, yeah. I'm just trying to think. So, uh, have we said everything that we? I think I think we, we have, summed yeah. it up. Okay. Yeah. So yeah. so now yeah, now it's come now <laughs> god awful small large affair cover yeah cover affair. Um. So so uh, as as um as Morris alluded to earlier. So we like I do like to conclude our episodes of disinfect with you know what did the artists think of the song? So Barbara Streisand herself. Much like Madonna disavowed American Pie, Barbara Streisand, in a 1991 interview on Larry King Live, she said that Butterfly was her least favorite album in her music catalog. And that tells you something. And then... It and even be Yentl. <laughs> <laughs> Yentl had some hits on it, though. You know what I mean? Yeah, it was pretty bad, though. She also directed Yentl. I mean, that was a, know. you know. Um, well, and I, I mean, I think, and again, it's like it's it was the sound of her being adrift and her putting her career in somebody else's hands and not really yes. taking the reins and not yeah. knowing what to do and not you yes. know questioning her relevance in popular culture. And then when David Bowie was asked what he thought about Barbara Streisand's cover of Life on Mars, this is, you know, Playboy said, what do you think of Barbara Streisand recording your song, Life on Mars? This is what Bowie said. Well, actually, you should, you should say it because... Yeah, because I, I, I would... I would well, you have I to give really the English sound, accent. I don't sound like Bowie, but he, he was asked what he thought about it, uh, and he was disappointed. He claimed that it was bloody awful... And atrocious, he said. Well, should I do my should I do my bloody awful atrocious sure. English accent? Well, do it do it as Bowie, you know, like you bloody know. awful. Sorry, Bob, it was atrocious. Not even close. How was that? Terrible. Yeah, pretty bad. Close. So anyway, Bowie thought it was fucking horrible and an atrocity. I, I have a question for the outro. Do you actually believe that there is life on Mars? Good question. Are you asking me or are you asking sort of our listenership? 
I think we could open it up to the floor. Maybe they can, maybe that can, well, you know. I think you brought up an interesting thing, which is that's the whole point of David Bowie's song. Is there, you know, are we insignificant? Because, you know, if there's life on Mars, dot, dot, dot. But the other thing is, the other reason why I'm asking it is we might have to move there depending on what happens. Uh, that's next true. <laughs> oh, to be honest, too. Yes. <laughs> you, you, do you know what my second favorite version of the song Life on Mars is by? By who? Dexter Oncel. Hmm. I don't even know it. And it's it's called Life on Mars, but it's not a cover of the Bowie song. Um, it's um, So Dexter Wansell is a very famous dance producer out of Philadelphia. Um, and he had uh, hits like Sweetest Pain, um, Life on Mars, which was like a Paradise Garage classic, um, uh, favorite discotheque. I mean, just brilliant. So... If, if anyone wants to hear a good song called Life on Mars besides the Bowie one, check out Dexter Oneself.
This effect was created by Boris Bernstein and Matt Deal. Produced by Sean Lewis and Esther Yoon. Theme music by Jeremy Clark, a.k.a. Mr. 66. Artwork by Bill McMullen, a.k.a. Millions Make Millions. If you want to tell us how much you love or hate, disinfect, or wish to purchase an extremely overpriced commemorative mug, oven mitt, or t-shirt, please find us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and disinfectpodcast.com. You can also contact us at info at disinfectpodcast.com. Please like, subscribe, donate, all that shit. Thank you and see you next episode to disinfect more of music's worst songs. Wherever fine podcasts are shilled. Copyright Giant Step 2020 and whatever other necessary boilerplate legal mumbo jumbo blah 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 you hear at the end of your favorite podcasts. <laughs>